Section seventeen of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section seventeen. A London Suburb. After traversing the park, we come into the neighborhood of Greenwich Hospital, and will pass through one of its spacious gateways for the sake of glancing at an establishment which does more honor to the heart of England than anything else that I am acquainted with of a public nature. It is very seldom that we can be sensible of anything like kindliness in the acts or relations of such an artificial thing as a national government. Our own government, I should conceive, is too much an abstraction ever to feel any sympathy for its maimed sailors and soldiers, though it will doubtless do them a severe kind of justice, as chilling as the touch of steel. But it seemed to me that the Greenwich pensioners are the petted children of the nation, and that the government is their dry nurse and that the old men themselves have a childlike consciousness of their position. Very likely a better sort of life might have been arranged, and a wiser care bestowed on them, but, such as it is, it enables them to spend a sluggish, careless, comfortable old age, grumbling, growling, gruff, as if all the foul weather of their past years were pent up within them yet not much more discontented than such weather-beaten and battle-battered fragments of humankind must inevitably be. Their home, in its outward form, is on a very magnificent plan. Its germ was a royal palace, the full expansion of which has resulted in a series of edifices externally more beautiful than any English palace that I have seen consisting of several quadrangles of stately architecture, united by colonnades and gravel walks, and enclosing grassy squares, with statues in the centre, the whole extending along the Thames. It is built of marble, or very light-colored stone in the classic style, with pillars and porticoes, which, to my own taste, and I fancy to that of the old sailors, produce but a cold and shivery effect in the English climate. Had I been the architect, I would have studied the characters, habits, and predilections of nautical people in Wapping, Hotherhithe, and the neighborhood of the Tower, places which I visited in affectionate remembrance of Captain Lemuel Gulliver and other actual or mythological navigators and would have built the hospital in a kind of ethereal similitude to the narrow, dark, ugly, and inconvenient, but snug and cosy homeliness of the sailor boarding-houses there. There can be no question that all the above attributes, or enough of them to satisfy an old sailor's heart, might be reconciled with architectural beauty and the wholesome contrivances of modern dwellings, and thus a novel and genuine style of building be given to the world. But their countrymen meant kindly by the old fellows in assigning them the ancient royal site, where Elizabeth held her court, and Charles the Second began to build his palace. So far as the locality went, it was treating them like so many kings, and, with a discreet abundance of grog, beer, and tobacco, 
there was perhaps little more to be accomplished in behalf of men whose whole previous lives have tended to unfit them for old age. Their chief discomfort is probably for lack of something to do or think about, but, judging by the few whom I saw, a listless habit seems to have crept over them, a dim dreaminess of mood, in which they sit between asleep and awake, and find the long day wearing towards bedtime without its having made any distinct record of itself upon their consciousness. Sitting on stone benches in the sunshine, they subside into slumber, or nearly so, and start at the approach of footsteps echoing under the colonnades, ashamed to be caught napping, and rousing themselves in a hurry, as formerly on the midnight watch at sea. In their brightest moments they gather in groups and bore one another with endless sea-yarns about their voyages under famous admirals, and about gale and calm, battle and chase, and all that class of incident that has its sphere on the deck and in the hollow interior of a ship, where their world has exclusively been. For other pastime they quarrel among themselves, comrade with comrade, and perhaps shake paralytic fists in furrowed faces. If inclined for a little exercise, they can bestir their wooden legs on the long esplanade that borders by the Thames, criticizing the rig of passing ships, and firing off volleys of malediction at the steamers, which have made the sea another element that they used to be acquainted with. All this is but cold comfort for the evening of life, yet may compare rather favorably with the preceding portions of it, comprising little save imprisonment on shipboard, in the course of which they have been tossed all about the world, and caught hardly a glimpse of it, forgetting what grass and green trees are, and never finding out what woman is, though they may have encountered a painted spectre which they took for her. A country owes much to human beings whose bodies she has worn out, and whose immortal part she has left undeveloped or debased, as we tied them here, and having wasted an idle paragraph upon them, let me now suggest that old men have a kind of susceptibility to moral impressions, and even, up to an advanced period, a receptivity of truth, which often appears to come to them after the active time of life is past. The Greenwich pensioners might prove better subjects for true education now than in their schoolboy days, but then where is the normal school that could educate instructors for such a class? There is a beautiful chapel for the pensioners in the classic style, over the altar of which hangs a picture by West. I never could look at it long enough to make out its design, for this artist, though it pains me to say it of so respectable a countryman, had a gift of frigidity, a knack of grinding ice into his paint, a power of stupefying the spectator's perceptions, and quelling his sympathy beyond any other limer that ever handled a brush. In spite of many pangs of conscience, I seize this opportunity to wreak a lifelong abhorrence upon the poor, blameless man, for the sake of that dreary picture of Lear, an explosion of frosty fury, 
that used to be a bugbear to me in the Athenian exhibition. Would fire burn it, I wonder? The principal thing that they have to show you at Greenwich Hospital is the painted hall. It is a splendid and spacious room, at least a hundred feet long and half as high, with a ceiling painted in fresco by Sir James Thornhill. As a work of art, I presume, this frescoed canopy has little merit, though it produces an exceedingly rich effect by its brilliant coloring and as a specimen of magnificent upholstery. The walls of the grand apartment are entirely covered with pictures, many of them representing battles and other naval incidents that were once fresher in the world's memory than now, but chiefly portraits of old admirals comprising the whole line of heroes who have trod the quarter-decks of British ships for more than two hundred years back. Next to a tomb in Westminster Abbey, which was Nelson's most elevated object of ambition, it would seem to be the highest need of a naval warrior to have his portrait hung up in the painted hall. But by dint of victory upon victory, these illustrious personages have grown to be a mob, and by no means a very interesting one, so far as regards the character of the faces here depicted. They are generally commonplace, and often singularly stolid, and I have observed, both in the painted hall and elsewhere, and not only in portraits, but in the actual presence of such renowned people as I have caught glimpses of, that the countenances of heroes are not nearly so impressive as those of statesmen, except, of course, in the rare instances where warlike ability has been but the one-sided manifestation of a profound genius for managing the world's affairs. Nine-tenths of these distinguished admirals, for instance, if their faces tell truth, must needs have been blockheads, and might have served better, one would imagine, as wooden figureheads for their own ships than to direct any difficult and intricate scheme of action from the quarter-deck. It is doubtful whether the same kind of men will hereafter meet with a similar degree of success, for they were victorious chiefly through the old English hardihood, exercised in a field of which modern science had not yet got possession. Rough valor has lost something of its value since their days, and must continue to sink lower and lower in the comparative estimate of warlike qualities. In the next naval war, as between England and France, I would bet, methinks, upon the Frenchman's head. It is remarkable, however, that the great naval hero of England, the greatest, therefore, in the world and of all time, had none of the stolid characteristics that belong to his class, and cannot fairly be accepted as their representative man. Foremost in the roughest of professions, he was as delicately organized as a woman, and as painfully sensitive as a poet. More than any other Englishman, he won the love and admiration of his country, but won them through the efficacy of qualities that are not English, or, at all events, were intensified in this case, and made poignant and powerful by something morbid in the man, which put him otherwise at cross-purposes with life. He was a man of genius, 
and genius in an Englishman, not to cite the good old simile of a pearl in the oyster, is usually a symptom of a lack of balance in the general making up of the character, as we may satisfy ourselves by running over the list of their poets, for example, and observing how many of them have been sickly or deformed, and how often their lives have been darkened by insanity. An ordinary Englishman is the healthiest and wholesomest of human beings. An extraordinary one is almost always, in one way or another, a sick man. It was so with Lord Nelson. The wonderful contrast or relation between his personal qualities, the position which he held, and the life that he lived, makes him as interesting a personage as all history has to show and it is a pity that Southey's biography, so good in its superficial way, and yet so inadequate as regards any real delineation of the man, should have taken the subject out of the hands of some writer endowed with more delicate appreciation and deeper insight than that genuine Englishman possessed. But Southey accomplished his own purpose, which, apparently, was to present his hero as a pattern for England's young midshipmen. But the English capacity for hero-worship is full to the brim with what they are able to comprehend of Lord Nelson's character. Adjoining the painted hall is a smaller room, the walls of which are completely and exclusively adorned with pictures of the great admiral's exploits. We see the frail, ardent man in all the most noted events of his career, from his encounter with a polar bear to his death at Trafalgar, quivering here and there about the room like a blue, lambent flame. No Briton ever enters that apartment without feeling the beef and ale of his composition stirred to its depths, and finding himself changed into a hero for the notice, however stolid his brain, however tough his heart, however unexcitable his ordinary mood. To confess the truth, I myself, though belonging to another parish, have been deeply sensible to the sublime recollections there aroused, acknowledging that Nelson expressed his life in a kind of symbolic poetry which I had as much right to understand as these burly islanders. Cool and critical observer as I sought to be, I enjoyed their burst of honest indignation when a visitor, not an American, I am glad to say, thrust his walking-stick almost into Nelson's face in one of the pictures by way of pointing a remark, and the bystanders immediately glowed like so many hot coals, and would probably have consumed the offender in their wrath had he not effected his retreat. But the most sacred objects of all are two of Nelson's coats under separate glass cases. One is that which he wore at the Battle of the Nile, and is now sadly injured by moths, which will quite destroy it in a few years unless its guardians preserve it as we do Washington's military suit by occasionally baking it in an oven. The other is the coat in which he received his death wound at Trafalgar. On its breast are sewed three or four stars and orders of knighthood, now much dimmed by time and damp, but which glittered brightly enough on the battle-day to draw the fatal aim of a French marksman. 
the bullet-hole is visible on the shoulder, as well as part of the golden tassels of an epaulet, the rest of which was shot away. Over the coat is laid a white waistcoat with a great blood-stain on it, out of which all the redness has utterly faded, leaving it of a dingy yellow line, in the threescore years since that blood gushed out. Yet it was once the reddest blood in England, Nelson's blood. The hospital stands close adjacent to the town of Greenwich, which will always retain a kind of festal aspect in my memory, in consequence of my having first become acquainted with it on Easter Monday. Till a few years ago, the first three days of Easter were a carnival season in this old town, during which the idle and disreputable part of England poured itself into the streets like an inundation of the Thames, as unclean as that turbid mixture of the off-scourings of the vast city, and overflowing with its grimy pollution whatever rural innocence, if any, might be found in the suburban neighborhood. The festivity was called Greenwich Fair, the final one of which, in an immemorial succession, it was my fortune to behold. If I had bethought myself of going through the fair with a notebook and pencil, jotting down all the prominent objects, I doubt not that the result might have been a sketch of English life quite as characteristic and worthy of historical preservation as an account of the Roman carnival. Having neglected to do so, I remember little more than a confusion of unwashed and shabbily dressed people, intermixed with some smarter figures, but on the whole presenting a mobbish appearance, such as we never see in our own country. It taught me to understand why Shakespeare, in speaking of a crowd, so often alludes to its attribute of evil odor. The common people of England, I am afraid, have no daily familiarity with even so necessary a thing as a wash-bowl, not to mention a bathing-tub. And furthermore, it is one mighty difference between them and us, that every man and woman on our side of the water has a working-day suit and a holiday suit, and is occasionally as fresh as a rose, whereas in the good old country the griminess of his labor or squalid habits clings forever to the individual, and gets to be a part of his personal substance. These are broad facts, involving great corollaries and dependencies. There are really, if you stop to think about it, few sadder spectacles in the world than a ragged coat or a soiled and shabby gown at a festival. This unfragrant crowd was exceedingly dense, being welded together, as it were, in the street through which we strove to make our way. On either side were oyster-stands, stalls of oranges, a very prevalent fruit in England, where they give the withered ones a guise of freshness by boiling them, and booths covered with old sailcloth, in which the commodity that most attracted the eye was gilt gingerbread. It was so completely enveloped in Dutch gilding that I did not at first recognize an old acquaintance, but wondered what those golden crowns and images could be. There were likewise drums and other toys for small children, and a variety of showy and worthless articles for children of larger growth, though it perplexed me to imagine who, in such a mob, could have the innocent taste to desire playthings, 
or the money to pay for them. Not that I have a right to license the mob, on my own knowledge, of being any less innocent than a set of cleaner and better-dressed people might have been, for, though one of them stole my pocket-handkerchief, I could not but consider it fair game under the circumstances, and was grateful to the thief for sparing me my purse. They were quiet, civil, and remarkably good-humoured, making due allowance for the national gruffness. There was no riot, no tumultuous swaying to and fro of the mass, such as I have often noted in an American crowd, no noise of voices, except frequent bursts of laughter, hoarse or shrill, and a widely diffused, inarticulate murmur, resembling nothing so much as the rumbling of a tide among the arches of London Bridge. What immensely perplexed me was a sharp, angry sort of rattle in all quarters, far off and close at hand, and sometimes right at my own back, where it sounded as if the stout fabric of my English surtout had been ruthlessly rent in twain, and everybody's clothes all over the fair were evidently being torn asunder in the same way. By and by I discovered that this strange noise was produced by a little instrument called the fun of the fair, a sort of rattle consisting of a wooden wheel, the cogs of which turn against a thin slip of wood, and so produce a rasping sound when drawn smartly against a person's back. The ladies draw their rattles against the backs of their male friends, and everybody passes for a friend at Greenwich Fair, and the young men return the compliment on the broad British backs of the ladies, and all are bound by immemorial custom to take it in good part and be merry at the joke. As it was one of my prescribed official duties to give an account of such mechanical contrivances as might be unknown in my own country, I have thought it right to be thus particular in describing the fun of the fair. But this was far from being the sole amusement. There were theatrical booths, in front of which were pictorial representations of the scenes to be enacted within, and anon a drummer emerged from one of them, thumping on a terribly lax drum, and followed by the entire dramatis personae, who ranged themselves on a wooden platform in front of the theatre. They were dressed in character, but woefully shabby, with very dingy and wrinkled white tights, threadbare cotton velvets, crumpled silks, and crushed muslin, and all the gloss and glory gone out of their aspect and attire, seen thus in the broad daylight and after a long series of performances. They sang a song together, and withdrew into the theatre, whither the public were invited to follow them at the inconsiderable cost of a penny a ticket. Before another booth stood a pair of brawny fighting men, displaying their muscle, and soliciting patronage for an exhibition of the noble British art of pugilism. There were pictures of giants, monsters, and outlandish beasts, most prodigious to be sure, and worthy of all admiration, unless the artist had gone incomparably beyond his subject. Jugglers proclaimed aloud the miracles which they were prepared to work, and posture-makers dislocated every joint of their bodies, and tied their limbs into inextricable knots, wherever they could find space to spread a little square of carpet on the ground. 
In the midst of the confusion, while everybody was treading on his neighbor's toes, some little boys were very solicitous to brush your boots. These lads, I believe, are a product of modern society, at least no older than the time of Gay, who celebrates their origin in his trivia, but in most other respects the scene reminded me of Bunyan's description of Vanity Fair, nor is it all improbable that the pilgrim may have been a merry-maker here in his wild youth. It seemed very singular, though, of course, I immediately classified it as an English characteristic, to see a great many portable weighing machines, the owners of which cried out continually and amain, Come, know your weight! Come, come, know your weight to-day! Come, know your weight! And a multitude of people, mostly large in the girth, were moved by this vociferation to sit down in the machines. I know not whether they valued themselves on their beef, and estimated their standing as members of society at so much a pound, but I shall set it down as a national peculiarity, and a symbol of the prevalence of the earthly over the spiritual element, that Englishmen are wonderfully bent on knowing how solid and physically ponderous they are. On the whole, having an appetite for the brown bread and the tripe and sausages of life, as well as for its nicer cates and dainties, I enjoyed the scene, and was amused at the sight of a gruff old Greenwich pensioner, who, forgetful of the sailor frolics of his young days, stood looking with grim disapproval at all these vanities. Thus we squeezed our way through the mob-jammed town, and emerged into the park, where, likewise, we met a great many merry-makers, but with freer space for their gambols than in the streets. We soon found ourselves the targets for a cannonade with oranges, most of them in a decayed condition, which went humming past our ears from the vantage-ground of neighboring hillocks, sometimes hitting our sacred persons with an inelastic thump. This was one of the privileged freedoms of the time, which was nowise to be resented, except by returning the salute. Many persons were running races hand in hand down the declivities, especially that steepest one on the summit of which stands the World Central Observatory, and, as in the race of life, the partners were usually male and female, and often caught a tumble together before reaching the bottom of the hill. Hereabouts we were pestered and haunted by two young girls, the eldest not more than thirteen, teasing us to buy matches and finding no market for their commodity, the taller one suddenly turned a somerset before our faces, and rolled heels over head from top to bottom of the hill on which we stood. Then, scrambling up the acclivity, the topsy-turvy trollop offered us her matches again, as demurely as if she had never flung aside her equilibrium, so that, dreading a repetition of the feat, we gave her sixpence and an admonition, and enjoined her never to do so any more. The most curious amusement that we witnessed here, or anywhere else indeed, was an ancient and hereditary pastime called kissing in the ring. I shall describe the sport exactly as I saw it, although an English friend assures me that there are certain ceremonies with a handkerchief which make it much more decorous and graceful. A handkerchief, indeed! 
There was no such thing in the crowd, except it were one which they had just filched out of my pocket. It is one of the simplest kind of games, needing little or no practice to make the player altogether perfect, and the manner of it is this. A ring is formed, in the present case it was of large circumference, and thickly gemmed around with faces, mostly on the broad grin, into the centre of which steps an adventurous youth, and, looking round the circle, selects whatever maiden may most delight his eye. He presents his hand, which she is bound to accept, leads her into the centre, salutes her on the lips, and retires, taking his stand in the expectant circle. The girl, in her turn, throws a favourable regard on some fortunate young man, offers her hand to lead him forth, makes him happy with a maidenly kiss, and withdraws to hide her blushes, if any there be, among the simpering faces in the ring, while the favoured swain loses no time in transferring her salute to the prettiest and plumpest among the many mouths that are priming themselves in anticipation. And thus the thing goes on till all the festive throng are enwreathed and intertwined into an endless and inextricable chain of kisses, though, indeed, it smote me with compassion to reflect that some forlorn pair of lips might be left out, and never know the triumph of a salute, after throwing aside so many delicate reserves for the sake of winning it. If the young men had any chivalry, there was fair chance to display it by kissing the homeliest damsel in the circle. To be frank, however, at the first glance, and to my American eye, they all looked homely alike, and the chivalry that I suggest is more than I could have been capable of at any period of my life. They seemed to be country lasses, of sturdy and wholesome aspect, with coarse-grained cabbage-rosy cheeks, and, I am willing to suppose, a stout texture of moral principle, such as would bear a good deal of rough usage without suffering much detriment. But how unlike the trim little damsels of my native land! I desire above all things to be courteous, but, since the plain truth must be told, the soil and climate of England produce feminine beauty as rarely as they do delicate fruit, and though admirable specimens of both are to be met with, they are the hothouse ameliorations of refined society, and apt, moreover, to relapse into the coarseness of the original stock. The men are manlike, but the women are not beautiful, though the female bull be well enough adapted to the male. To return to the lasses of Greenwich Fair, their charms were few, and their behaviour perhaps not altogether commendable, and yet it was impossible not to feel a degree of faith in their innocent intentions, with such a half-bashful zest and entire simplicity did they keep up their part of the game. It put the spectator in good humour to look at them, because there was still something of the old Arcadian life, the secure freedom of the antique age, in their way of surrendering their lips to strangers, as if there were no evil or impurity in the world. As for the young men, they were chiefly specimens of the vulgar sediment of London life, often shabbily genteel, rowdyish, pale, wearing the unbrushed coat, 
unshifted linen, and unwashed faces of yesterday, as well as the haggardness of last night's jollity in a gin-shop. Gathering their character from these tokens, I wondered whether there were any reasonable prospect of their fair partners returning to their rustic homes with as much innocence, whatever were its amount or quality, as they brought to Greenwich Fair, in spite of the perilous familiarity established by kissing in the ring. The manifold disorders resulting from the fair, at which a vast city was brought into intimate relations, with a comparatively rural district, have at length led to its suppression. This was the very last celebration of it, and brought to a close the broad-mouthed merriment of many hundred years. Thus my poor sketch, faint as its colors are, may acquire some little value in the reader's eyes from the consideration that no observer of the coming time will ever have an opportunity to give a better. I should find it difficult to believe, however, that the queer pastime just described, or any moral mischief to which that and other customs might pave the way, can have led to the overthrow of Greenwich Fair for it has often seemed to me that Englishmen of station and respectability, unless of a peculiarly philanthropic turn, have neither any faith in the feminine purity of the lower orders of their own countrywomen, nor the slightest value for it, allowing its possible existence. The distinction of ranks is so marked that the English cottage damsel holds a position somewhat analogous to that of the negro girl in our southern states. Hence comes inevitable detriment to the moral condition of those men themselves, who forget that the humblest woman has a right and a duty to hold herself in the same sanctity as the highest. The subject cannot well be discussed in these pages, but I offer it as a serious conviction, from what I have been able to observe, that the England of to-day is the unscrupulous old England of Tom Jones and Joseph Andrews, Humphrey Clinker and Roderick Random, and, in our refined era, just the same as that more free-spoken epoch, this singular people has a certain contempt for any fine-strained purity, any special squeamishness, as they consider it, on the part of an ingenuous youth." they appear to look upon it as a suspicious phenomenon in the masculine character. Nevertheless, I by no means take upon me to affirm that English morality, as regards the phase here alluded to, is really at a lower point than our own. Assuredly I hope so, because making a higher pretension, or, at all events, more carefully hiding whatever may be amiss, we are either better than they, or necessarily a great deal worse. It impressed me that their open avowal and recognition of immoralities served to throw the disease to the surface, where it might be more effectually dealt with, and leave a sacred interior not utterly profaned, instead of turning its poison back among the inner vitalities of the character, and at the imminent risk of corrupting them all. Be that as it may, these Englishmen are certainly a franker and simpler people than ourselves, from peer to peasant, but if we can take it as compensatory on our own part, which I leave to be considered, 
that they owe those noble and manly qualities to a coarser grain in their nature, and that, with a finer one in ours, we shall ultimately acquire a marble polish of which they are unsusceptible, I believe that this may be the truth. End of section 17